You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're going to go in God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And as I mentioned, we're in this little mini-series. We'll start um, in a few weeks a little bit more of a regular, longer series uh, for the fall, but in the summer, just taking a little bit of time and bouncing around a little bit through this theme of what does God desire for the church as Jesus gathers a people and, together? And with that come so many questions and complexities. And today we encounter something I, th- I hope will be really good for us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll read uh, verse 2 to 17. Let's bring our attention to God's word. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who are in every place, Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about, your, about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the, name, in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but that I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's word. I mean, we can recognize the funny in that, right? I don't even know who I baptize. I say that sometimes too. Um, Yeah, here's the opening of Paul, the Apostle Paul's words to the church at Corinth, and you'll see that word that we've been talking about, ekklesia, it's that, word, that Greek word for church. It's the called out ones, the brought together ones, the indwelt ones by the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. And this preaching series is about the church. How, how does the church get along? That's the question for today. How do we get along? And I, I apologize for bringing up a topic that is of no relevance to us. Of course, this is so relevant. This is something that can be applied in in every relationship within the church. Of course, the question is critical because if you spent five minutes in the church, you will encounter opportunity for division. You'll encounter opportunity for disunity and for conflict. And if you spent years in the church, you likely have heard or have in your own memory many stories of pain, Stories of division that you wish just could have gone another way. And God's word has so much to say. 
you'll be the cause of church conflict if you stay long enough. You will witness church conflict if you stay long enough. You will desire to gather with a small part of the church with people you might agree with and disassociate or avoid people you don't agree with if you stay long enough. All of those realities and temptations are present in, in our church. We're not immune to it here at Holy Cross. But I think there's such a more beautiful way forward. God provides a beautiful way in his word, not just here, but this is a, a really great passage to start the conversation. Our passage lays out this blueprint for a way to get along together. I want you, if we want to get along, we need to understand a few things. One, the cause of division. We need to understand what getting along actually looks like, and then finally, how to do it, how to get along. How is it even possible? So let's talk about that this morning, the cause of division. I don't want you to be too distracted by this topic of baptism that is brought up. Baptism is this particular type of conflict that they are dealing with in this church. And it seems that the real issue, and the, the real issue is the habit of these Christians in this church of making anything a stumbling block other than unity in Christ. Anything at all in the church, any topic, any, any, anything that we do as a church can be an opportunity for conflict and division where the focus ought to be unity in Christ. And, and for them, it's baptism. And Paul is writing to them and saying, hey, Chloe's people, I just got a, a letter, you know, dated seven years ago. And I'm just finding out that you guys are struggling, you're fighting, you're quarreling, you're taking issue with something and it is shadowing a greater thing and that is unity in Christ. There's opportunity here in, the way, in your beliefs and practices and associations about baptism that is causing you to be a polarized church and divided in many different ways and you're fighting about it and that should never happen. I was baptized by Paul, or I was baptized by Apollos, I was baptized by Cephas. How long into the early church did it take for that pretty pastor mentality to be invented? Immediately, immediately, right away, early church, the first gathering of God's people, they're already saying, this is who we are, this is the kind of person we want to follow, and this is, this is who we are, and then other people said, well, this is what we like, and here's the personality we like, and here's the person we like, and they became divided. You know, people say a lot, if we could just go back to the early church and the way they did it, that would be so much better. The early church was such a mess. They were such a mess, no different from today. The cause of division is that we forget ultimately what is important. And what is ultimately important is that we have been called into fellowship with Jesus, called his body, and he is not divided. Jesus did not save you and I so that we can have an opinion on the culture. Jesus did not save you and I to have a certain political leading. Jesus did not save you and I to be an advocate for the poor. Jesus did not save you and I to have an opinion about racial injustice. Jesus did not save you and I to have an opinion about critical race theory. I'm making you so uncomfortable right now. He did not, is that, this is, these are weird things to say. Jesus did not save you 
so that you might have an opinion on cultural matters. Is Paul saying then that like culture and politics and caring for the poor and race are unimportant? Of course not. Absolutely not. Look again at what he says in verse 17. He says, Christ did not send me. He did not call me out of sin and into relationship with him to baptize, but to preach the gospel, to bring people into relationship with Jesus. But think about it. An argument could really be made, even from scripture, an argument can be made that God did save Paul to baptize. Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, and so on and so forth. We could say he was called out of sin in order to baptize. Is baptism important? Of course it is. This is the topic that they are struggling with. It's a fundamental means of our identification in the church, but there is an identification that is more important than that. There is an identification that is more important than your political leaning, than your passion for the marginalized, than your personality, than any involvement that you have with any single person or group on this world. The gospel says we have been called into fellowship with Jesus. And the gospel reality is this in verse four. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of how you voted. No, wait, oh my gosh, that's not what he says. I give thanks to God always for you. And then he goes on to say something that they actually had nothing to do with that wasn't their idea, that wasn't their plan. Because of the grace of God was given to you. That is your identity. And from that identity, everything else flows. Everything comes in a deep second place. You shouldn't even fight about it. Here's what Paul is doing. He's arguing that when we are united in Christ by the grace of God, articulated through the gospel message of Jesus' perfect life, death for us in our place, and resurrection and triumph over sin, everything becomes a matter of secondary importance. Everything. Here's what Paul is doing. He is arguing that even important things, even, even important spiritual, godly, holy things should not divide us. When we are united in Christ by faith in a deep understanding of the grace that he has given to us. Well, then if not division, then what? Right? If not this kind of, this quarreling over differences, then, then what does he call us to? What's the alternative? Here, here's what he's getting to, and he says, you know, what does getting along look like? And then he kind of paints a picture for that. What does getting along look like? Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. How do you like that standard for the church? So agree on everything. Agree on everything. No divisions. A divided physical body is a horrible thought. If you had a division of the body, a, a rip, a tear, a, a flesh wound, a broken bone, it is not only in the best interests of you know, yourself, but your body to, to mend that brokenness, to heal that wound, to, to, to restore it, to stitch it up. In fact, we spend a great deal of time and energy and money, resources, thousands 
thousands of dollars uh, a year, I imagine, to protect our bodies and to care for them well and to heal what is sick and broken. We don't even like getting wrinkles, let alone flesh wounds and broken bones. A divided church is just as gruesome. A divided church is, is just as painful. But what does it really mean to agree? What does getting along look like? And, and who gets to decide? <laughs> who gets to decide what then is the standard and, and what getting along actually looks like? Well, there's a negative command in here and then there's a positive command. A negative command is no divisions. Do not have any divisions. Do not be divided. And there's a positive command, something to do. He says, be united in the same mind and same judgment. And so this positive command actually helps us to understand what the negative command actually means, because that seems bizarre. Don't be divided on anything. Agree on everything. Well, that just is impossible. It's impossible. How do we agree on everything? We, you can't agree on everything. We got digital thermostats in here because we can't even agree on what temperature is right. And so I control it from my phone now. <laughs> we can't agree on anything. So the positive command helps us understand this negative command. And the positive command says this, be united in the same mind and same judgment. If, if fights and divisions tear apart the body and wound the body, then the church ought to be about the work of mending constantly. Constantly being about the work of mending where there's divisions, restoring where there's brokenness, healing where there's pain and sickness. Our differences have all the ingredients and all the potential to rip apart. That's what they are designed to do. That's the work of the devil. That's his MO. Taking our differences and using those to exploit one another so that we can be torn apart. But the work of Christ is the exact opposite. His body is united to mend, to put back together. The gospel is about putting back together to repairing, to healing. To be united is to be committed to the work of mending reconciliation and restoration wherever there is division. That's the work of Christ. That's the work of unity. And this is the beautiful work of a physician. The beautiful, good work of, of physicians is, is to put together the body. The body cannot survive divided. No, we can't survive divided. Holy Cross can't survive divided. The beautiful work of a physician is to, is to mend, to bring healing, and to restore and it's wonderful that in this sermon, I don't have to give an illustration or an application for how we are dangerously divided as a church. Praise God for that. What a wonderful thing. As far as I can tell, there isn't this division. There isn't this conflict. There isn't this bickering. But we can, we can hear these words and, and receive this exhortation for times when that does happen because it will. It'll happen in, in, in private among you and one other person. It'll happen in small groups. It may even happen very publicly as a church. But how does this beautiful work of, of unity and mending together, how does it happen? It happens in these two ways, unity in mind and judgment. Here's how we get along. Be of the same mind. Which mind? Whose mind? My mind? Your mind? Whose mind are we to be united in? Culture's mind? Whatever is trending on Twitter or Barb's blog, there's no Barb here, right? 
I read it in a blog once. But it's the mind of Christ. Whose mind? It's the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. We, we, we are united in the mind of Christ. And Paul tells us what the mind of Christ is to the church of Philippi and elsewhere throughout his letters. In Philippians 2, he says this, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one another. So he's getting into these same things. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do it for yourself. Don't do it because you think you're right or better than others. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is how Jesus is, who did not see his own glory, something to grasp, but he emptied himself of his own glory and made himself obedient even to the point of death. Jesus was right. If there ever was a person who was right, it was Jesus. And even then, his own glory did not take the place of God's glory and how that would be lived out in his life. What is more important than hearing and, and than you hearing and aligning with my point of view? There's something so much more important than you just aligning with me or me aligning to you. It is for me not to cling so tightly to my point of view that the glory of God is overshadowed. The argument is this. If Jesus did not grasp so tightly to his own glory so as to not risk the glory of God, then neither should we. If his opinion was not something he grasped so tightly to, then neither should we. Who are we to say that? To apply the mind of Christ to our disagreements means that whatever we think about anything must come under the revealed word of God. This is how we have the same mind of Christ. We humble our opinion. We elevate God's opinion. And then the goal for all of us is then to come under that opinion together, to be united under that point of view, that command, that posture, that heart, that temperament, that demeanor. It is elevating God's opinion with a posture of deep humility, recognizing that what we think really doesn't matter. That's really in mind. But the other thing is he says, be united in the mind of Christ, in the, of the same mind, but also be united in judgment. Have the same judgment. The church must agree that while we have a lot of questions that come up every day, a hundred a day, that could potentially divide us, the most important question is this, what does God say? And I wonder if that's usually the first question that might pop into your mind. It's not always for mine. When there's a question, when there's a problem, is it always, what does God desire here? How is he most glorified? How does this advance the gospel? How does this renew and soften our hearts for each other? How does this unite us? That's what it means to judge the same. We judge by the same authority, and it's not my authority, and it's not your authority. We, same by, we judge by the same authority, and it's the judgment of God. The Bible, if the Bible doesn't address it, this is even more reason to be of the same mind and have a posture of humility. A lot of things, it's very easy. Arguments can be settled very quickly. 
and said, hey, we are in agreement here. We have the same mind and same judgment. Here is what God says. Thus says the Lord that so this argument is over. We don't have to agree, but this, we are judging together that this is what God says and this is what is right. But then there's a lot of conflicts that you can search all scripture and you don't find a, a, a little hint of, of direction or wisdom on it. That's even more reason to express humility, openness, understanding. Because I'll tell you this, if we needed an opinion on, on a certain matter and God doesn't tell us, I promise you he wasn't relying on you to make sure we knew. He wasn't relying on you so that we could know. I didn't write about this, but uh, someone's coming in and they're going to tell you and, and you really need to listen to them. So if God doesn't talk about it, there is, there is so much room and even command for humility for freedom, for trying to seek and understand the other person's point of view, but in all things to be of the same mind, to seek out the other interests, not just our own. So there's a little bit of, you know, what we're called to, what it actually looks like, but my goodness, how do you even get there? How does that happen? How do we get along? Because still, I mean, we, we got the nuts and bolts and the ingredients, but it, it feels really hard. Let's talk about how to get along. Paul really helps us there as well. He tells us in verse 7, because you have Christ, because you have the grace of God, you are lacking in nothing. You, you have everything that you need through the resources of the gospel to be united. Paul speaks again about himself and what enables him to live out his calling. He refers to the power of the cross. If we are in Christ, if the gift of God's grace has come to us, then we have everything we need to get along because we have the power of the cross. I just can't bear this person. Yes, you can. I just can't love this person if they're going to stay that way or believe this thing. You absolutely can. If you have received the grace of Jesus you have all the resources needed to be united in mind and in judgment with others. There's so many divisions in the early church. This is just one. I mean, this is the first chapter in Corinthians, and this letter was written, and there's two dozen different conflicts in this, little, in this church. And he just goes through them one after another. And every single one, he says, if the grace of God has really been given to you, this can be figured out. You can really be united and in love with each other. There were strong divisions before Jesus even came to earth within the, the, the Jewish people and the, the Israelites, God's people. Divisions among the Jewish people were profound. They were a nation divided. And in, in Jerusalem, they were, the Jewish people, they were, they, don't think that this is like one kind of Jewish people, that the Jewish people were just looking to the heavens, waiting for the Messiah to come. The Jewish people were divided in serious factions. Six major groups of divisions uh, identified the Jewish people. There were the Pharisees, you've probably heard. There were a people group called the Essenes. There were the Sadducees. There were the priests. There were the Zealots. And then there were the common people, just the common citizens that had their own thoughts and opinions and read in Barb's blog and things like that. And there were all these groups. There were six major divisions among the people of God. And they were torn apart. They could not agree on much. They could not agree on who the Messiah was going to be and what he would look like. 
They could not agree on what he would do when he came. They couldn't agree on, on what needed to happen before he came. So they could, they didn't know how, they could not agree on how to live as faithful God honoring people until he came. That's why Peter had a sword in his pocket and why other people departed the city and just became like, you know, hermits and, and said, we shouldn't be a part of culture. And then others were like, no, we should beat up culture until they listen. And others were like, no, we should actually like assimilate with culture and make friends in culture. We still say those same things today. And here's the great part. Paul was a Pharisee. Simon was a zealot. John the Baptist was in a scene. Jesus gathers to himself all of these disciples from every different division group and puts them in a room together and says, figure it out. None of you are right. Figure it out. He puts them all in a room together and then he pours the Holy Spirit on them and unites them to himself through grace and says, you have everything you need right now. Yesterday, you wanted to kill each other and now you're going to give your lives to one another. How do we do? That's the power of the gospel. And it's not an accident that Jesus would do this. That not just from political divisions in the time of the people, but also social and relational divisions. He befriended and gave his grace to, to prostitutes, to outcasts, to lepers and sinners, to liars and thieves. They, they, he put them all in a room together. And then when Jesus was talking about the new kingdom that was going to come, do you know what the disciples did? We're told in actually more than one place. They started talking to one another and pointing big fingers and saying, I bet I can guess who it is, who's going to be good and who's going to be. And Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they all talked together and said, oh, I think we know who it is. And it was all somebody different. Why? Because they hated each other. They had opinions about that person. They got in a group and said, how could they bring that guy here? And as Jesus showed his love to them and gave them his grace, they, something amazing happened. They were bound together in love. They started to love one another. They started to give their lives to one another. The power of the cross is emptied when we make the gospel second importance to anything else. The power of the cross is just emptied. It becomes powerless in our lives. To say that there's power in the cross is to suggest that there's something about the cross that is still alive working in us, in our church, in our hearts. The truth of the cross is alive. It is at the cross we see the love of God poured out for sinners, undeserving people like you and me. At the cross we see that where the only righteous person who ever lived took on our sins and killed in the place of the unrighteous. At the cross, we see that we could never do the work that needed to be done in order to get God's forgiveness for our sins. And God himself would pay the penalty for it through the blood of his son. On the cross, we see that we can never be right enough. There was never an opinion we could hold dear and close enough to earn our way into God's forgiveness. That's powerful. And it is alive, and we're told that that gospel, that good news, it takes root in our heart like a seed that is planted in our heart, and it grows. When we believe in this, when our identity is in Christ and what he has done for us, 
when we make that the, the gospel the primary identity of who we are as a people, it grows in us and it overflows into relationships. And we see it most visibly, especially when we disagree. The cross is alive. It has powers, the power, because Christians who know that they have been forgiven by the grace of God are empowered by his message to the work of forgiving others, to restoring others, to mending divisions, to working through our differences with humility and grace and understanding and always with the love of Christ. Jesus gathers together the anti-vaxxer and the masker and says, you're both sinners and you both need Jesus. <laughs> he gathers the Republicans and the Democrats, the Wall Street executives, the plumbers. He gets together the libertarians and the socialists. He gets together the never-Trumpers and the QAnoners, the Ford guy and the Chevy guy the introvert and the extrovert. The introvert just doesn't show up. So <laughs> he gets us together and he says, if you have been given the gift of grace, then you have everything you need to love, receive, to dwell in perfect harmony with that person who you say it can't be done. Because the gulf that separated us from God's love, the reality is it, it cannot be done. The relationship cannot be restored by any means other than a substitute, other than God himself coming in, taking our place, and then pouring out the gift of his Holy Spirit, his very presence and power and resurrected life in us and the same resurrected power that bridges that impossible gulf restores division among his people. Because the power of the cross holds a unique power for us to see exactly who we really are and still be loved. And we can look at another person and see them for who they really are in all the ways that disappoint and disgust us and still love them. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.